Hello, folks. Before we begin, think to yourself, have you listened to something new lately? Because on the Simply Scary Podcast Network, there is always something new to try. Don't miss the latest episode of Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, airing Thursdays. And of course, don't forget Drew Blood's Dark Tales, Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSurley, and of course, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. You can find them all at the Simply Scary Podcast.com network on YouTube or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights.com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Join us for a while, won't you? <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 23. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Patrick Neil Gallagher. Tonight we'll hear stories of houses of pain, unfriendly reunions, and lethal leviathans. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the tear, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu today to sign up. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Let's go back a little bit. Not too far. Around the middle of last century. We're going to take a peek in on two people. One, a dedicated member of the law. The other, warped by war into something too violent to be out and about in proper society. But while one seeks to put one in prison, the other might soon be in one of his own devising. Without further ado, I present to you The Halfway House. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Calvin McCready supposed the words were beautiful. He put the book down on the table. Then he picked up the hammer. The table was pushed up against the basement wall and illuminated only by an electric lamp. Pale light danced over the walls, which were gray and peeling. There was the smell of damp. There was also noise, wailing. Was it laughter or screaming? Galvin sometimes confused the two. Darkness crawled at the edge of the lamp's flickering arc. On the floor sat a porcelain doll, barely two feet tall, lace-dressed covering her legs. She tilted slightly to one side. Flecks of dirt dotted her white face, red lips and staring blue eyes. Her orange hair was frayed, her dress filthy. She'd been dragged through the mud. Stop making that noise, said Calvin. The doll looked at him and he looked at her. If you don't stop with that racket, I'm going to thump ye. He gestured with a hammer. You look just like Abigail, you know, with your bonny dress and ruddy hair. Churns me insides. The doll stared. Calvin lurched forward and swung the hammer hard down on the doll's right leg. It was a strangled crunch as it struck the concrete through the fabric and porcelain. The legs splintered, shards of it scattering out of the dress. Calvin grimaced. The noise worsened. It was a screaming white light behind his eyes. He clasped his ears. He took one last look at the doll. She'd fallen on her right side, painted face, staring blankly at a strange angle to the floor. She could have been scowling at. Still gripping the hammer, Calvin staggered to the door and slammed it shut behind him. Silvery mist pressed against the window pane. Douglas Boyle watched thin fingers of condensation creep down before turning back to the man on the other side of the desk. The office was small and cluttered. Towering bookcases lined every wall and disappeared into the murky darkness of the high ceiling, out of reach of the lamplight. Boyle was a large man, shoulders bulging out at the sides of the Windsor armchair. His bowler hat was on his lap. With his red face, veiny nose, watery eyes, and bristling mustache, he had the countenance of a man who had had too long a stay. Boyle was also accustomed to the pungent reek of tobacco. The other man rumpled his nose and coughed. So, Calvin McCready gasped 
Dr. Ian Renfrew between wheezes. He was a weasel of a man with a sweating, balding head, brown glasses, and a filthy medical coat. I must say, Chief Inspector, I'm not sure there's an awful lot I can do to help you. Boyle leaned forward and tapped his cigarette on the ashtray. He exhaled smoke, watching Renfrew's nose wrinkle. He spoke to McCready when he returned from Europe. Aye, yes. You see a lot of our boys when they return home. December's been a rather busy time. Christmas and all that. McCready served in the number 11 commando unit alongside Jeffrey Keyes, the man who received the Victoria Cross posthumously after Operation Flipper in 41. What can you tell me about him? I can tell you, confidentiality between a psychiatrist and his patient is valued most highly, Chief Inspector. Boyle reached inside his overcoat. Renfrew flinched. Boyle pulled out a piece of paper and a pair of spectacles, both folded. He opened his spectacles and pushed them up against his nose. He placed the piece of paper on the desk. It was a gray-grained photograph. At first, Renfrew thought it was a skeleton. Then he saw that it was a man. He recognized him, in fact. Calvin McCready was wearing a military uniform. His hair was as thin and wasted as his face. His sunken eyes black slits that glowered off the page. Malevolence seemed to leech from the crinkled photograph. Boyle slid it closer to Renfrew, who felt himself seized up at the sight of the wretched thing. Yesterday afternoon, this man abducted an 11-year-old girl from his school in Ruther Glen. The neighbors saw them walking together and identified the man as your former patient, Calvin McCready. Now, that's truly awful, but I'm not finished. Ah. Margaret Dwyer was found in a basement in Bridgeton this morning. They say they found her from the trail of muddy school books. They made it from the poetry of T.S. Eliot to A Christmas Carol before they decided to just follow the screaming. Her right leg was broken. She'd been at her with a claw hammer. Oh, dear Lord. Boyle put his hand back inside his overcoat. I have a photograph of that, too. Renfrew squirmed and held up his hands. Enough, enough. Uh, Let me explain. He swallowed. Chief Inspector, the extent of MacReady's delusions is unlike anything I've ever seen. Frightening, even. You were aware of MacReady's condition, yet ye did not notify the authorities? I had no reason to believe it would lead him to be violent. Was it the war that made him this way? Well, perhaps. I'm not suggesting that every man who goes off to fight for his country is criminally deranged. Mine is a peculiar thing. It could take on all kinds of shapes in the name of self-preservation. Everyone's haunted by ghosts, Chief Inspector, although they're not always the kind in the white sheet and cut-out eyes. Sometimes all it takes is a place, a person, a happenstance, for them to jump out of the wardrobe and shout, Boo! Renfrew licked his lips. You seem a little strange yourself, Chief Inspector. Imagine there's a lot of pressure on this case. Careful, Doctor, Boyle murmured. Renfrew smiled. It was an ugly smile. His teeth were yellow and crooked. His gums were like raw meat. He 
served in the Great War, did you not? You must have seen some terrible things. Tell me, what is it that is haunting you? I don't want a therapy session. Then what do you want? Boyle leaned forward. I want to know what he's going to do next. Calvin's foot slammed into a puddle, shattering the perfect image of the moon that had been reflected there. There was a low mist that slipped over the sodden cobbles and writhed into darkness. Calvin sprinted across Cathedral Square towards St. Mungo's Church with its towering arches and twisting spires. Behind it, a spectral shape in the gloom sat a low hill littered with gravestones. Angelic statues stood watch, their hands raised to the darkness. It was the necropolis. Fifty thousand people were buried there. Galvin suspected that one day soon he would be one of them. He hauled himself over a spiked iron fence and clambered up the hill, slipping and sliding in the mud. At the top he turned. Glasgow spread out in front of him like a smoldering, glittering blanket. Stars and streetlights twinkled. Chimney stacks smoked. There was a noise. Electric torches flashed in Cathedral Square, casting long beams of dirty yellow light into the murk. Policemen. Dogs. Calvin turned and ran. Douglas Boyle looked up at Calvin's gangling silhouette on a hillock. Run him down, he growled. Detective constables Hardy and Miller threw down their leads. Two jabbering Rottweilers tore through the gate and up the hill. Hardy and Miller sprinted after him. Creedy disappeared. Boyle charged through the gate and up the hill. There was a crash and the terrible shriek of a horse. Boyle cursed as he ran. Gravestones and statues flashed past. There was a small paddock behind a church. Hardy and Miller were standing in front of a stable. The gate had been smashed inward, and the dogs were picking at pieces of wood that lay in the grass. The stable was empty. Behind it was a road lined on both sides with fences. "'Damn,' said Boyle. "'Damn!' he bellowed. He kicked one of the wooden chunks. His fist was clenched and shaking. "'We're going to need a car.' "'I'd fancy he's taking the Edinburgh Road,' said Miller." There's nothing fanciful about this, Boyle snarled. Calvin had ridden all night and most of the day. The sun was sinking lower and lower in the ashen sky, drenching the landscape in an inky blue hue. The mist was a pale smoke rolling over the hills. Naked trees leered like terrible scarecrows. The horse had long since collapsed of exhaustion, tongue lolling in the dirt another day before Calvin reached Edinburgh. One day until he reached Abigail. He wondered if she still lived on Shettleston Lane, where he had lived as a lad. It didn't matter. He would find her. In any case, she would not be living there much longer. She would be dying there instead. But first, he had to find somewhere to rest for the night. Calvin hurried through the mist, which billowed and curled on all sides. It had a foul, sulfurous smell. Shapes formed and melted away. Of all that Calvin could be certain was the few square yards of wiry grass that stretched away from him before disappearing completely. 
It squelched and splashed beneath his feet. Other than that, he could have been anywhere or nowhere at all. Galvin stopped running. He stood still, hands spread out as if his fingers were reaching for something solid in the void. He squeezed his eyes shut so tightly that they ached and stang with tears. Galvin! Galvin opened up his eyes. He was no longer standing in the hills halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. He was on the beach of Cashamel Cobb, the dog's nose. There was not mist that surrounded him. It was smoke. The rattle of gunfire echoed around. Bullets lashed at the ground, throwing up sand. It was happening again. Calvin watched as Lieutenant Colonel Keyes died in front of him. Blood spat out of a hole that had been punched through his chest. He died screaming a woman's name. Whispers called to him. It was as if they were breathing down his neck and yet calling from far away. Calvin! It was not just Jeffrey Keyes. It was the little girl as well, Margaret. Had that been her name? They're so silly. Make me laugh again. And Abigail. Love ye, Calvin McCready. Galvin shrieked and ran. Calvin! Murky blueness surrounded him. There were flickering shades of gray. Shadows? Silhouettes? A huge shape appeared in the distance. Galvin barreled towards it. Muddy puddles splattered. Grass tore at his legs. It was a house. It emerged from the haze like a ship from a sea storm. Chimneys crowned the roof on each side, which was tall and pointed like some dark fortress. Slates were missing. The blackstone walls were overgrown with dead brown moss. Some windows were smashed. Some were boarded. All of them were dark and decrepit. The front door stood at the top of three cracked steps hidden behind two columns. It was in shadow. A tree stood before the house. A gnarled black hand clawing out of the mud. Calvin stared at the house and it stared at him. There was an evil in the way it perched on the hill. A gargantuan spider bearing down on the fly. Calvin shuddered. Calvin! Calvin made his choice. He sprinted toward the house up the stairs and crashed into the front door. Calvin! The whispers were getting closer. Calvin kicked the door. It shook on its hinges. He kicked it again and threw it open. There was only darkness within. He entered the house and slammed the door shut behind him. The slam boomed through the house. Calvin leaned against the door, breathing heavily, before turning, panicking, and twisting at the lock. It had broken when he had kicked it in. It was stiff and heavy. It most likely had not been touched in a long time. Years, perhaps. On either side of the door was a wooden hook. Looking around, Calvin found a plank leaning against the wall. He placed it on the hooks, barring the door. The whispers would try and get in. Calvin would be damned if he'd let him in. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, 
All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It was a round window next to the door, sheathed in black curtains. Galvin pressed his face against it. The oppressive fog was rattling against the glass. It seemed to be getting darker. He'd have to find light soon, otherwise he would not be able to see his own hands. Calvin turned away from the door. It was in an entrance hall. Wide open doorways led off to shadowy rooms to the left and to the right. A dilapidated oak staircase coiled up into the darkness before him. The smell reminded Calvin of the basement in Bridgeton. Damp, time-worn, abandoned. It was extremely cold. Everything was either black or close to it. The floorboards were a dark mahogany. The floral paisley wallpaper was cracked and peeling. Scratched brass frames hung at odd angles, the pictures worn and undistinguishable. Dust coated everything. Everything was still and had been for a very long time. Yet the house seemed to fidget. The building itself seemed to breathe. Curtains rustled. Grandfather clock ticked, its beats hollow and echoing. Galvin craned his neck to look upwards. The roof was cloaked in darkness, but somewhere in the rafters a bird beat its wings. Calvin took a step forward. Creak. He looked at his foot and pressed down again on the loose floorboard. Creak. 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 Hello, he called out. The house called back to him. Hello. Hello, hello. He was alone. Calvin crept over to a gas lamp that was hanging on the wall at the foot of the staircase. The orb was cracked and opaque with grime. Cobwebs clung to it like a ghastly bunting. Calvin pulled the chain. There was no spark. He peered up at the stairs. It was too dark. He couldn't see further than the first dozen steps would not be a good idea to go up there. The house was old and unlit. It would likely break a leg or worse. No, Calvin would stay downstairs where it was safe. He shuffled back through the entrance hall into the room to the right of the stairs. It was a dining room. The same black curtains were draped in front of the three tall windows. Dust hung in the air, glistening in the dirty light that shone through the windows and onto the long dinner table. A brass three-pronged candlestick stood upon it. The candles were yellowed and shrunken. Melted wax that had long since cooled dribbled down them. Chest of drawers sat to the side of the table. Calvin found matches in the second drawer under a bundle of old papers. He lit one. It flared for a moment before settling into a quivering orange flame. Calvin took it to the candlestick and lit each candle in turn. The three flames bathed the room in a warm orange light. 
the shadows creeping away. Calvin allowed himself a long, rattling sigh. He supposed that he could pass the night in this place. It had clearly been untouched for years. He'd broken the lock, a heavy lock, that had stood guard on the house for a very long time. The house was empty. He was completely and utterly alone. Creak? Calvin froze. The noise had come from upstairs, somewhere within the dark recesses of the house. Old places were always murmuring. Pipes spluttered in the wind sighed. But what Calvin had just heard was a floorboard moaning with the same purpose and intensity as someone scratching their nails down the full length of a blackboard. Calvin stood utterly still, waiting for the noise to happen again. But it didn't. There was a seething silence, apart from the beating of the clock, which seemed to stretch out and intensify in volume like the pounding of a drum. It matched the beating of Calvin's heart. Beads of sweat were cold on his brow. He could see the last few steps of the oak staircase peering round the door from the entrance hall. It seemed to be inviting him upstairs. Come on, Calvin. Come and have a look. Gripping the flaming candlestick in one hand, he used the other to pull the hammer from his trousers and hold it aloft. The flames swooshed through the air, causing all of the shadows to wheel on their axis like winding clocks. Calvin edged forward. The staircase crept into view from the edge of the door. Three steps, five steps, seven. Slowly making his way back across the entrance hall, Calvin strained his eyes to see the top of the stairs. The candlestick threw its light into what looked like the end of the corridor. Calvin made his way up one step at a time, each one groaning under his weight. The arc of the candlelight followed him upwards, shrouding the hall once again in darkness. Calvin stood at the top of the stairs. His breath was high-pitched and rapid. He could only see so far down the corridor. A thin rug lay on the floor. Doors ran along each side, all of them closed. There was no way for Calvin to see beyond a few feet of shuddering candlelight. The corridor may have begun to twist like a skewered pig on a spit, leaving Calvin to scramble up the wall to the ceiling and round and round. It may have suddenly plummeted straight down into the fiery depths of hell. There was no way of knowing. There was just dark. Who's there, then? Calvin asked. His voice suddenly sounded very small and shallow. The glow of the candlestick peeled back the shadows as he advanced. There were more doors. Calvin checked each one in turn. A lavatory, a study, and a storeroom. All dark, damp, and dripping. Calvin came to a door that was unlike the others. Halfway up the blackened wood, as if written by a child, were the scrawny capitals, Thomas, in rough pencil. Calvin stared at the name for a moment. He pushed the door open with a hammer. It screeched on its hinges as it swung slowly open. It appeared to be a boy's bedroom. The orange light of the candlestick flickered over the walls, making cobwebs dance. There was a wooden rocking horse sitting in the corner, it had clearly once been painted white, 
that had long since withered and grayed. Its wide eyes stared, its mane hung in tatters. Shitter sticks were propped up against the wall. Red, torn leather balls lay dotted around the floor. The four-poster bed stood in the middle of the room, drapes hanging from it in rags. A chest of drawers was pushed against the wall next to the door. Everything was adorned in a gray sheen of dust. It was very cold. There was a cracked casement window on the opposite side of the room from the drawers. It was open. The chill of the air numbed Calvin's skin. He padded across the room, carefully placed a candlestick on the windowsill, and watched his own white reflection heave the window closed. There was a click as the lock fastened. Calvin breathed out heavily, watching it leave his mouth. He picked up the candlestick and walked over to the drawers. Placing it on top, he pulled open the first one. There were more papers. Letters, newspapers, school reports. Galvin thrust his hand in and was surprised that they did not crumble in his hands. Time had stiffened them. They were crunches, as if he were digging through a pile of frosted leaves. Galvin stopped. He touched something cold and hard. He swallowed and withdrew his hand slowly. He was holding a tin soldier, wearing a blue uniform and carrying a tiny rifle. Calvin looked at the dabs of red and blue paint that were his rosy cheeks and smiling eyes. He threw the horrid thing aside. The toy clattered into the corner of the room. Calvin had relaxed slightly. There was no one on the upper floor, and certainly no whispers of any kind. How could there be? There was no way for anyone to enter without him seeing them. It's hardly going to say, Hello, why don't you come in? Galvin placed the hammer on the top of the drawers next to the candlestick and wiped the sweat from his brow. He could feel the frenzied Sherzo of his heartbeat slowing from Allegretto to Adante, but he still had his back to the window. There was a packet sitting on top of the drawer that looked newer than the rest. Calvin picked it up and, using his stained fingers, slipped it open. The contents were emptied into the drawer. Enlistment papers. Calvin picked up the first. It was addressed to Master Thomas MacDonald, born in 1925. He had enlisted in the 51st Highland Division. Calvin threw the paper aside. It swooped across the floor. The second was for Master James MacDonald, born in 1919 also enlisted in the 51st Highland Division. That was thrown over Calvin's shoulder. The third was for Mistress Jeanette MacDonald, born in 1881 and enlisted in the Women's Royal Naval Service. They had all enlisted in 1941, the same year as Calvin. The papers fluttered to the floor. He picked up the hammer again. He was hunched over the drawer, his breathing haggard and heavy. That was why the house was empty. The little boy had grown up in the room, but he had long since marched to the war to burning fields of blood, bullets, and sharpened metal. The house, too, had been left to rot. He was sure the house had been beautiful once. It had taken the war to show its true face. Despite everything, Calvin smiled. Everything made sense. Then a cold breath of air touched the back of his neck. 
Callum whipped around, taking the hammer and raising it above his head, ready to swing. But there was nothing to swing at. The window was wide open. The black curtains were fluttering in the icy breeze. Silvery, moonlit fog gyrated outside. Calvin stood there, heaving, hard hammering against his ribcage. His terrified gaze drifted slowly downward. It was as if he did not dare, could not dare, to even look. But there they were. Muddy footprints, black in the moonlight, crept over the windowsill, down the wall, and across the floor toward the door. Whoever had left them must have walked right past him. While one side of the trail was small and clearly defined, the other was a smudged line, as if whoever had left them had been limping, as if they had a broken leg. Calvin! Calvin screamed. The sound was naked and shrill. It pierced the frozen air and threw itself around the room, along the corridor, down the stairs, and into all of the dark corners of the house. The voice had come from downstairs. It was also one that Calvin recognized. It was a voice that had sown its seed in his head the first time he heard it. Its foul roots had clung there ever since. Abigail. The sound of her lit a flame of something deep within him. Calvin remembered the act he had bestowed upon himself. With one hand, he wrenched the blazing candlestick from the drawers. With the other, he gripped the hammer. Calvin marched out of the room. The strange, lopsided footprints continued into the corridor. They dragged themselves along the rug and out of reach of the candlestick's trembling glow. As Calvin prowled forward, he expected at any moment for them to come to an end and for their crooked author to be revealed. But they didn't. Calvin came to the stairs, looked over the banister, and down into the entrance hall. It was a lot darker. Calvin could no longer see the front door. It was simply black, broken only by the orange pool on the mahogany floor that spilled down the stairs from the candlestick. The footprints began to descend the staircase, but Calvin's gaze had been drawn from them quite suddenly. He was looking at the thin shadow of the woman that was cast on the candlelit floor. Calvin placed one foot on the staircase. Creak! The shadow disappeared, flitting out of sight. There was the titter of childish laughter. Calvin took the stairs slowly, one by one. Creak! 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 He followed the footprints. Calvin imagined whoever left them, taking each step in turn, and waiting for their lame leg to drag down with a thud after them. Creak! Thud! Creak! Thud! Creak! Thud! It almost came as a surprise when he reached the bottom. Calvin felt the energy that pulsed through the veins and arteries of the house. It was alive in the same way a jungle was alive. Shadows flickered in the candlelight like branches. Leaves quivered in the wind. Something was about to pounce. The candlestick blew itself out of its own accord. The flames were extinguished as if some invisible person had snuffed them out to be replaced by three smoking wicks. Calvin felt a winter chill rush through him. Blood turned to ice in his veins. 
Calvin could see nothing, not the hands that were clutching his useless weapons, not the end of his nose. Everything was black. Staggered away from the stairs, there was nothing. There was just the black. Something was close to him, though. He could feel it. All of his insides were screaming it. Then there came the voice. It was a sweet voice, smiling and yet brimming with venom. It was Abigail's voice, and it seemed to come from all around. Do you think I'm beautiful? asked Abigail. Calvin whipped round and round. He swung with a hammer. It made a whistle as it sliced through the air. I ain't afraid of you, he shouted. You sound like her, but I know you're not. I'm going to find her, and when I do, I'm going to crack her skull on the paving stones. It was hideous laughter. Do you think I'm beautiful? Abigail repeated. There ain't no beauty, stammered Calvin. He gestured with a hammer he could not see. This is all there is. Blood and iron, nothing more. But you do think I'm beautiful, said Abigail. You think I'm the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. That's why you want to smash that hammer into my head, so my brains run out my nostrils. Calvin's eyes were beginning to become accustomed to the new darkness. He focused his gaze on what he believed to be the foot of the staircase. There was nothing there. What was frightening was the fact that something had been there a moment ago. There were other voices, too, Calvin moaned. He recognized them immediately. You left me in the dark, giggled Margaret Dwyer. How do you like it? Calvin could hear the shuffle of a broken leg. Thud, thud, thud. Tell her. Tell her for me, please. Jeffrey Keyes breathed his last all over again. All she has to do, if she wants to see me again, is close her eyes. They were getting closer, circling him as beasts would circle their prey. Calvin could almost see Abigail's face, gray ribbons of flesh dropping from her skull, smiling teeth through tattered lips and black eyes glinting. You'll kill me, and then what? Abigail jeered. The whispers will stop. The world will make sense in your silly little head. The last of Calvin's courage slipped from him. The hammer and smoking candlestick fell noisily from his hands. He cowered to the floor. I beg ye, Calvin cried. I beg ye, mercy, mercy, mercy. Laughed Abigail. What place is there for mercy in a world of blood and iron? Mercy is the beauty of the soul. What place is there for that? Calvin shrunk into himself, pulling his knees up to his shaking chest and clawing at his hair. Tears squirted down his cheeks. I don't know what to do, he screamed. Calvin couldn't see Abigail, but somehow he knew she was smiling. No, it was worse than a smile. She was grinning like a wolf. Don't fret, my love. We'll show ye. Out of the way, ye damn fool. Boyle pushed Hardy aside and kicked the door. It threw open one of the hooks, holding in place, retching from the wall. There was a noise like thunder. 
dust scattered to the floor. Sunlight streamed into the house. Boyle towered in the doorway. Mother of God, he breathed. McCready was sitting cross-legged in the middle of the mahogany floor. A bloody hammer was laid down in front of him. He raised his hand. Boyle could not tell whether it was a greeting or he was shielding himself from the blinding glare of the sun. I've been waiting on you, he smiled, blinking dumbly in the harsh light. Douglas Boyle and Calvin McGreedy stared at each other. There was something in his eyes, Boyle thought, something different. Boyle did not trust it, but then Boyle didn't trust many things. Was old-fashioned blind luck one of them? It had been a long, arduous night of scouring the moors with torches and dogs. Boyle had seen the old house sitting on its hill from across the valley. Here was McCready. He might as well have put the shackles on himself. Boyle sniffed. Take him away, he said finally. Hardy and Miller pulled McCready roughly off the floor and let him out of the house. He didn't struggle. Boyle followed them out the door. The house was on a hill overlooking a shadow dale. The sun was rising over the valley, tingling the last of the morning mist with a yellow, pale light. The sky was a pallid blue. A police car had driven up to the house, leaving muddy tracks in the lush grass. A pretty stood in the doorway for a moment at the top of the steps. Hardy and Miller firmly gripping the sides. He looked at the hills in the distance. You know, he said, this place is beautiful. Boyle watched as McGrady was led down the hill and hauled into the back of the car. The door slammed shut behind him. Hardy and Miller strode up toward Boyle, who was still standing on the steps. His gaze was fixed on the police cars, and he could see McCready sitting, hunched over inside. Congratulations, sir, said Hardy. Boyle grunted. He took one last look at the house. Dull light winked off the grimy glass of an upper window, as if it knew something he didn't. Then he strode heavily down the steps and onto the grass, his overcoat flapping in the breeze. Miserable bastard said Miller, watching Boyle climb in front of the door. The door shut with a bang. Boyle watched frost spread slowly across the windowpane, as blood would a white tablecloth. The view of Glasgow evening was obscured by an icy veneer. The first snow was starting to fall outside. There were two armchairs in Boyle's living room. He sat in one. His overcoat lay across the other, fireplace rustled between them, throwing orange light onto the crinkled white walls and stacked bookcases. A patterned rug lay on the floor. Within arm's reach of Boyle's chair sat a gramophone on a low coffee table. Flames distorted reflection shimmered on the curved surface of the horn, making the scratches flicker across the brass. A log in the fireplace snapped. The clock on the mantelpiece ticked and talked was the warm smell of beef stewing in the kitchen. Boyle leaned across to the gramophone and pulled down the stylus. It settled into the waxen grooves of the record disc. Boyle did not need to check the disc. 
It started its unsteady spin on the needle. Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony crackled away quietly. He leaned back in his chair. The music was quite beautiful. Douglas Bowell smiled closed his eyes. I hope you enjoyed The Halfway House by Patrick Neil Gallagher, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Gallagher. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R. He has a self-named website, if you're so inclined to visit, where you can find the tale you've just heard, along with a few others you might find a little on the strange side. If you do decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. A happy ending, you might ask. Perhaps, but I guess it depends on who you ask. You never know what skeletons are rattling around in someone's head, even when they are at their most calm. For some of us, we've experienced things in our past we don't always like to talk about. Not that we ever forget, really. We just try not to dwell on it. Our next tale, in which success seems to be in the cards for a young lady with eyes on a big prize, till something that happened to her many years ago has come roaring back with eyes on a prize of its own. Without further ado, I present to you Possession. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. Luke 11, 24. Christina Bloom chewed the end of her pen and wondered whether the two men by the water cooler would ever get a move on. She'd been watching them for a week. The tall one would saunter over with his empty bottle, and the one with the beard would immediately stiffen. He'd lean on top of the cooler to say something, and the other would laugh loudly. As office romances went, it was a match made in heaven. Except not. Because one would walk back to finance, and the other would walk back to HR, and it would happen exactly the same the next day. It was a dance. Someone had to take the first step. Christina heard the clacking of a keyboard in her ear. She smiled and tapped her headset. Still there, Peter? she asked. You're going to tell me what you thought of my proposal. It needs more pictures. Christina laughed. Quite right. If that's what tickles your pickle, there's a dotted line on the last page. What did you think of that? I'll only sign if I'm convinced your software can help me enforce business compliance. In my experience, people don't need a guiding hand. They need a forceful one. Now, once again, you're absolutely right. I'm going to tell you all about it, but before I do, I'd like to understand your challenges a little more. 
Come back to you in 30 seconds, please, Peter? Of course. Thank you so much. Christina whipped off her headset and left her desk. Did she put him on hold? Someone whispered behind her. Her heels wrapped the tile floor. Water cooler was against the floor to ceiling window and close enough to the gherkin that Christina could look down into the upper floors. Every office was the same. White, modern, and ugly. You boys coming to Kathy's leaving drinks tonight? Christina leaned against the glass, throwing her dark hair to the side. Her eyes glinted like sunlight on steel. Kathy's leaving? The tall one remarked as he filled his bottle. Is it because of the fight at Roxy's? No, Sarah left because of the fight at Roxy's, said the one with the beard. Kathy's leaving because of the fight at Wagamama's. Oh, yeah, that was great. Fab, chimed Christina. Roxy's after work. I didn't think you knew our names, said the tall one. Finance and HR, she smiled back. I've got you on LinkedIn. Are you going? asked one to the other. I'll go if you go, he replied. Peter, Christina exclaimed as she replaced her headset at her desk. We can talk more when we meet tomorrow, but thinking ahead, I don't think compliance is going to be an issue. She slammed her glass onto the bar. Vodka leaps up the sides. She tried to pick it up again, but it was fastened to the sticky surface like a mollusk to a rock. Well, Christina turned to a man with brown eyes. You're just going to have to buy me another one, aren't you? Two hours later, they were sitting in a booth. The tall one and the one with the beard were in the booth next to them, getting better acquainted. Sales is all about believing in yourself. Christina was talking loudly over the music. It's not about convincing someone to spend a hundred grand on a computer program they'd never heard of five minutes ago. It's about convincing yourself that you're worth their investment. Every time I pick up the phone, I know I can steer any conversation into one that gets money on the board. The board? Asked Brown Eyes. Oh yeah, the board. It's got our names on it. Every time you get a deal, it goes up on the board. Tomorrow afternoon, I'm meeting a prospect who's out for a contract of 90K. If I close that deal, get me over my target for the quarter. It's a lot more exciting than it sounds, but as exciting as it is, I'm more excited to know when you're going to ask me to dance. I was planning to. Sure. Your friend locked eyes with her across the dance floor. Christina winked and the girl looked away. You might want to find something to hold on to, smiled Christina. Two hours after that, they were girdled by writhing people. The smell was a hot mix of sweat and alcohol. Christina's hair was plastered to her forehead and neck. She moved her body and he followed. She raised her hand and skimmed her fingernails over the back of his neck, feeling the hairs prickle. Christina smiled. He was a puppet on a string. I'm going to make you kill yourself. Cold rushed through her in the sticky heat, as if she'd been standing in front of a moving train. The voice was thick and warm and sweet like rolling treacle. It wasn't a man with brown eyes she was dancing with. It was someone else, 
whose hands were rough. They threw her right and left, dragged her up and down. Feeling of his nails made her want to tear skin from her body like a shroud from the statue. Are you all right? Brown Eyes was shouting into her ear. Christina realized she was utterly rigid. Through the pulsing colored lights and gyrating bodies, she could even see eyes staring. Get my jacket, she replied. Christina hugged her arms around herself. The pounding of her heels against the wet pavement was clearly her head. She drank in the freezing air and watched it escape her mouth in quivering bursts. Wait! He was brown eyes. She listened to his running footsteps and tried to walk faster. They were alone on London Bridge. The Shard and Tower Bridge cast their glittering reflections on the Thames. Christina could hear the water lapping slyly at the banks, leaving a creeping mark on the walls. It was the wet smell of sewage. She only needed to make it to the tube station, and she was home and dry, and he needed to go away. Christina spun. Brown eyes clattered to a stop. He had his hands on his knees. His face was red. Is everything all right? He panted. I suppose it would be better if I had something to hand to didn't realize there was a relay on. I'm walking home. I suggest you do the same. You seem to seize up in there. You turned very cold. Are you sure you're feeling okay? I'm fine. Would you like me to walk you home? Definitely not. Okay, okay. Brown eyes straightened and squinted, smiling a little. He leaned against the railing as if trying to hide how exhausted he was. His eyes darted across her face as if they would find the words there. Well, you seem like a good girl. I'd like to see you again, when you're feeling better, of course. I'm not all that good, replied Christina. She turned and left him there. Christina dreamed of rosary beads clutched in her mother's quivering hands. She dreamed of unlit figures standing over her bed, throwing water that burned like acid. She dreamed of thin hands with outstretched fingers slithering down the walls from the shadows above. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been way too long since my last confession. I wouldn't have come this morning except, well, last night I had a bad dream. It's not a sin to have nightmares. I know it's not, Father. The thing is, this was the dream I had when I was awake. It was, Jesus Christ... It was terrifying. I don't like that kind of language in here. Sorry, Father. Like I said, it's been a while. You might say I'm feeling jumpy. I actually used to be on your side of the veil in a way. Why don't you start at the beginning? Okay, I will. I'm just finding this difficult. Christina sighed and leaned her head against the wooden corner of the box in which she was kneeling. The lattice shadow of the divide between her and the priest fell across her face. She could see his dark form through the wooden mesh. His head was cocked, waiting for her to begin. It happened when I was twelve. I would have bad dreams. My mom would burst in and dry my tears. The same thing would happen the next night. I know that's normal. Every girl has bad dreams. The problem was the dreams started to become one. I'd have the same dream every night. Christina moved her hands up and down her arms. The scars had long faded 
were beginning to itch again. I'd be asleep in bed, frozen, unable to move. It would be dark, but I always knew someone was in the room with me. A visitor. A visitor. That's what he called himself when I first saw him. He was peering at me from behind the wardrobe in the corner of the room. He stood there for hours and hours. The next night, he'd stand at the end of my bed. Worst was when he'd crouch next to me, right by my face, staring at me. It was dark, but I could always see him because he was darker than dark. Darker than black. He had huge twisting horns and goat's hooves for feet. Would he speak to you? I'd ask him what he wanted, and he would say, I want you. One night, I watched his hand reach across the bed and felt his fingernails in my skin. I woke up screaming, with blood running down my arm and the sheets drenched with sweat and other stuff. That's the morning my mother called the church. She heard the priest shift on the other side. What happened when your mother called the church? Christina's lips shook. She could already feel the tears welling up in her eyes and working up her throat like a fist. She swallowed painfully and pulled her hands roughly down her face. She sniffed and continued. When she did, her voice shook. I only remember fragments. I don't want to talk about it. I just know the dream stopped and never came back. Until last night. There was silence from the other side of the divide that lasted nearly a minute. When the voice did come, it was more than a whisper, as if it didn't want God to hear. Confess. What did you say? Whatever sin has caused this malevolent entity to return to you, you need to confess it now before God, and he will forgive you. This isn't happening because of anything I've done. Listen, the priest hissed. An oppressing spirit will try and force you to commit the ultimate sin, murder or worse. You must cleanse your soul and regain the grace of God before it's too late. The box shook as Christina hauled herself to her feet and staggered out of it. She threw the confession door shut behind her. The noise boomed through the cavernous archways and towering columns of Westminster Cathedral. Faces stared from shadowy pews. Candles flickered from hanging grass chandeliers just above her head. Christina strode down the aisle and didn't look back. Believe in yourself. Christina wanted to scream that at the mirror that was at the end of the hall of the left woman, staring back at her, was leaning on the handle with both hands as if it were a sink in which she had just vomited. She was breathing deep, heavy sighs. Christina looked into her eyes. She was in control. She'd be damned if she wasn't. Ding! The lift doors opened. You prepped? Her sales director was on her before she had made it to her desk. He was the sort of man who wore a suit every day, even though the dress code was smart casual. A grin was cracked across his face, but his eyes were anything but smiling. He leaned against a pillar beneath the board. Christina threw a leather jacket onto the desk. Of course I'm prepped, said Christina. When's he getting here? Wait for him in the boardroom. 
want me to be in there with you? Don't insult me. You just look a little off. He tapped his pen on the board above his head. 90K. Going to get it done? Might as well mark it up right now. Christina picked up her notebook and looked across the office. Everything was the same as it had been the day before. The mundanity was suffocating. Christina felt utterly removed from it. There was the sound of keyboards clattering, hushed conversations of salespeople pitching over the phone. Everyone else was gaping at their computer screens. The tall one and the one with the beard stole glances at each other from across the room. There was glass wall on the far side separating the boardroom from the rest of the Christina realized she would feel a lot better when she was on the other side of it. She left her sales director by the board. As she approached, she could see the prospect at the end of a long table looking impatient. Florida's ceiling window was filled with the blue of the sky. Ah, Peter, you're here already. So sorry to keep you. Yeah, don't worry about it. He stood up as she entered. The prospect was a large man in an even larger suit. His slave hung from his arm as he reached to shake her hand. She smiled brightly, making sure her handshake was eager, but not too eager. Honestly, traffic was a nightmare. Christina shook her head. Managed to get here without too much hassle? It was Harry getting into Waterloo, but once you're on the Jubilee, it's plain sailing. That's the thing with Waterloo. Everyone gets off so you get a seat. Exactly. Well, hopefully the commuter hasn't got you in too bad a mood. Thanks again for meeting me. Now, we both know how this works. I'm not going to assume you've come here with a shopping list. You've read my proposal. Are there any concerns that spring to mind? There was a projector between them. As Christina spoke, she leaned forward and turned it on. A red square emblazoned with a company logo was thrown on the white wall behind her. The text in the bottom corner announced it as... Slide one of five. We spoke yesterday about business compliance, the prospect draw. I was wondering if you had a case study explaining how your software has helped previous clients in this area. Christina picked up the clicker that would move the slides. Standing in front of the projector, she, too, was drenched in red. I'm really glad you asked, Peter. This presentation details a business transformation undertaken by a partner who publicly credited our software. In fact, slide two has a breakdown of statistics I think you'll find interesting. Christina changed slide one to slide two. She looked up at a photo of her own dead body. She changed slide two back to slide one. She turned to the prospect. He was looking at her expectantly. Is everything all right? Yes, I just got a problem with the clicker. Gripping it tightly to stop it shaking, Christina changed slide one back to slide two, which was now a screenshot of a detailed spreadsheet. Only she had seen it. It had been for less than a second, but the image had been branded into her brain. Her body had been lying, broken, on what looked like pavement, a ragdoll thrown from a great height. Her matted hair had been splayed over her face, but it definitely had been her. She had definitely been dead. The prospect was still appearing at slide two. Christina wiped her face and hoped the prospect hadn't noticed she'd turned pale. 
She was in control like she always was. Any questions, Peter? Prospect shuffled papers and cleared his throat. Everything seems self-explanatory. I just have one niggle. I'm wondering when you're planning to kill yourself, you whore. Christina's eyes whipped from the presentation to the prospect. He was sitting as straight as a pike in the ground. All his clothes had disappeared. He was entirely naked. His bloated body hung off him like what looked like rolls of pockmarked, uncooked pork. His face was hard and pointed, and he was wearing a crooked sickle of a grin. Christina was frozen, yet she knew she had to get herself as far away from the man as possible. It was as if she was staring at a pink, bloated spider. She had no doubt as to whom she was now speaking. I'm not going to kill myself. Prospect's black eyes shone, and his grin grew wider. He raised an arm. Vainy Fat shuddered as he did so. Christina's eyes followed his gnarled finger. Slide two changed to slide three without her touching the clicker. There was another photo of her. Gray and face down on a littered, strewn beach. Dead. Stop it, said Christina. Slide three changed to slide four. Christina was hanging from a black tree in a swirling mist. I said stop it. Slide four changed to slide five. Christina was a misshapen silhouette engulfed in a billowing bonfire. Listen, said Christina. She leaned forward and placed her hands on the glass table, trying desperately not to let the hysteria show in her face. She spoke slowly and surely. I'm not going to kill myself. You are not going to touch my body again. He stood up suddenly. His flabby buttocks rolled the chair across the floor. Christina nearly screamed. His body smelled of sour milk. The prospect spoke, but it was not the prospect's voice. It was a voice like butter melting in a pan. They were seven words that chilled Christina down to the marrow of her bones. How are you going to stop me? Then he was on the table scrabbling towards her. His knees squeaked on the glass surface. Every obscene piece of his body swung from side to side. Christina let fear freeze her over. She was unable to move just like she had been, a little girl in her bed fifteen years earlier. Outside, no one looked up from their computer screens. The last thing she saw and felt was that foul grin him thrusting his arm down on her throat, all the way to his shoulder, and climbing inside her. The wind was whistling in her ears and grabbing at her clothes. Christina could see spider plants that lined the square edge of the roof, along with the blue sky and scattering of wispy clouds. These were reflected on the Thames, which snaked through the gray sea of low buildings and on the slanting panels of the shard. People scurrying about the pavements were utterly tiny. Christina realized she was thinking very much about what it would be like to join them. Gravity would ripple her face, her stomach would rise inside her, and once she hit the pavement with a bloody smack, so would everything else. The next thing Christina realized is she was dancing again. Her hands were clasped in his. 
He turned and she turned to him. Gravel crunched as she took long strides with one foot and slid the other to join it. Christina had followed the steps more times than she could remember. What was nightmarish about this instance was that there was no one else there. If someone were to stumble onto the roof, it would be as if she was dancing with her shadow. You're going to jump. That familiar cold numbed her arms and legs as if ice had touched the back of her neck. It was the silken voice that had led her, one step at a time, from the boardroom, up the stairs, and onto the roof. In an act of what could have been kindness, but was certainly one of cruelty, he wasn't going to make her jump. She was the one who had to do it. Despite it all, it was what Christina saw next that made her clutch tighter at this spectral form. She may as well have been grabbing at smoke. Her eyes bulged as if they were going to ooze from their sockets like snails from their shells. Christina was looking at herself. There was another her. She had the same clothes. She had the same everything. The other Christina was standing away from them, horribly straight with her feet planted on the edge and face toward the horizon. Her hair fluttered around her head, and her skirt fluttered around her legs. What was truly horrible was how delicate Christina looked to herself. All it would take was a gust of wind, and she would topple out of sight. Before she could call out, she was spun away. Christina let his vaporous form draw close and wash over her. She scuttled her fingers up where she imagined his neck to be, and sidled around again. She could almost feel him quiver. Christina allowed herself the flicker of a smile. It evaporated just as quickly. The other Christina was facing them, still perched precariously on the edge. Christina could see her own face. It was as white as office walls and a portrait of pure terror. The other was bellowing something, but she couldn't hear it. She could only see her own clenched fist and mouth stretched so wide that her eyes were squeezed shut and tears streaming down her cheeks. She squinted at her own strained lips. Excitement tinged her heart like a flame to metal. Christina was trying to tell herself something, and Christina knew what it was. That's when she felt a very solid touch of his fingers, and every nerve in her body shrieked. She was wrapped in his towering form. It felt like being inside a gigantic moving scab. His face was dark. His horns curled into spirals. His hooves were dangling hair and dragged great clefts through the gravel. She could feel his hot, snorting breath in the crook of her neck. His clawed hands grasped at her body. They moved under her clothes and clutched handfuls of flesh, manipulating it. His nails started to leave thin red lines on her shoulders. Her skin tore slowly. Searing pain hissed and blistered as if hot irons were being pressed against her. A gasp rose in her throat, escaped in a groan that was mostly frustration. The urge swelled in her to give up control, to surrender herself. It would be so much easier to let him have his way. Without him, she was a husk. She wasn't even going to hit her target for the quarter. We will be together, came the voice into her ear. 
warm and seductive and hideous. We will be nothing, Christina whispered, and so are you. She dropped her hands and drove her knee upwards. It was a shattering connection that brought a wave of satisfaction, the kind that crashes over rocks and cascades up the beach. What Christina realized next was she wasn't in the middle of the roof. She was tottering on the edge where the other Christina had been. It was as if she'd been hurled from one body to the other. Her shoes scraped off the side and her arms flailed. Her stomach dropped. The pavement spun in front of her. For a dizzying moment, she thought she was going to throw herself from the building regardless. Then she tumbled through the spider plants and onto the roof. She stood there panting. It was warm. Christina realized for the first time that the sun was splashed over her. Closing her eyes, she swayed, allowing herself to enjoy the heat on her face. She'd returned from where she'd been. Christina knew it, the way one knows they've been dreaming, but only once they've woken up. She wheeled around to find the roof deserted. Just because you got inside my body, you think you're inside my head? She snarled at no one at all. But I have control. I have control. And I've won. Christina managed to catch herself on the ledge and collapse onto it. Even under the white glare of the sun, she scoured the rooftop, eyes darting between the shadows and dark places. There was a door leading downstairs, and a row of wooden benches that had clearly been chosen for aesthetics rather than comfort. Satisfied, she laid down. The metal ledge was hot against her back. The dancing leaves of the spider plants prickled at her skin. Christina smiled. For a moment, things had been worse than uncomfortable. She would stir again. She knew it. And when he did, it would be because she was in a dark place. And it just wouldn't be on a roof. And she knew what to tell herself. It was six months since Christina had walked out of the office. And six months since she had last walked into it. She was sitting outside a coffee shop in Chelsea. The white garden table looked like something she would have found at a grandmother's house, as would the dry cake. Flower displays adorned the front shop behind her. She watched girls line up outside the entrance to take a photograph. Christina sighed and dropped her fork. She had given up on the cake. Sorry I'm late. Dan rushed past her, dragged out a chair with a grating screech. He dropped himself into it and huffed, smiling at her red face. He always seemed to be out of breath. Christina pushed a plate of cake toward him. Is it nice? he asked. Delicious, but I'm all full up. You finish it. Fancy a drink later. Christina glanced around. Definitely. Where do you want to go? Christina Bloom looked into his brown eyes and smiled. Up to you, she replied. I hope you enjoyed Possession by Patrick Neil Gallagher, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Gallagher. That's simplyscarypodcast.com 
slash G-A-L-L-A-G-H-E-R. If you thought what you've heard this evening was enough to give you the chills, he has more where that came from. Come to his website, won't you? As a reminder, if you do decide to give tonight's talented author stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. And be sure to let him know you heard about him here on this program and that Otis sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine. I'm pretty sure he would very much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium, extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes, featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month. Get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production 
in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>